episode 55 with architect Seku Cook. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with architect Seku Cook. Seku is one of the leading advocates for the study and practice of hip-hop architecture, a quote, newly expanding design philosophy which sees architecture as a distinct part of hip-hop's cultural expression and which uses hip-hop as a lens through which to provoke new architectural ideas, end quote. Born and raised in Jamaica to a family of educators, young Seku decided he'd take a different path, the path of design. After high school, he boarded a plane for the United States, where he attended Cornell University and later Harvard's Graduate School of Design, receiving a bachelor and master's degree in architecture. In his journey of exploring the built environment, his practice and curiosity eventually led him to the place where his passions for hip-hop, design, and architecture would all collide. Currently, Seku is the director of the Master of Urban Design program at University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and his work was recently featured in the landmark exhibition, Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Curated by our episode two guest, architect Dr. Mabel O. Wilson. His highly acclaimed and newly released book, Hip Hop Architecture, can be found wherever books are sold. In today's episode, we explore the architecture of hip-hop and the ways urban design helped shape and birth the genre itself. We lean into the possibilities created when we refuse and interrogate existing systems, and Seku reminds us that whether it's hip-hop, your career, or your practice, it's essential to make sure that love is at the center of everything you do. Speaking of love, if you love what you hear on today's episode, share your favorite moment over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. To watch this full episode, visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. And you can find this and more content over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, the insightful Seku Cook. Mr. Seku Cook, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I am so excited to hop into this conversation. You are, and your and your work is actually so pivotal um, to not only this organization, but just the way I understand design writ large. So I'm super excited to hop into this combo. Welcome. Thank you, Dario. Glad to be here. It's all. Uh... It's nice and shiny inside this institute. It's, <laughs> it's <laughs> thanks for welcoming me in. Yeah, man, there's plenty of good room, plenty of good room. Um, so to start, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Um, always to my mother. Um, she's an inspirational um, force in my life. She's a lifelong educator, teacher. Um, 
uh, one of the most motivated, high energy people that I know um, taught me the meaning of um, multitasking and and doing more work than time that you have. So yeah, for sure, my mother. And what's her name? Cynthia Cook. Cynthia Cook. All right, this one is uh, for you, Cynthia. So to begin, what is hip hop architecture? Yeah, that's that's like the question I get um, almost every day <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, which is funny because I keep trying to avoid the question in one way or another. Um, I keep thinking that you know I'm probably going to get to a point where no one asks me the question anymore. Um, I didn't know what it was. So I wrote a, a, an essay on it in 2014. Um, then people kept asking. Then I had a symposium with 12 people in 2015. Then people wanted to know what it looked like. So I put together an exhibition in 2018 and had that touring, um, which is still touring now. Um, and then uh, people kept still kept asking. So I wrote a whole book. Um, so I'm not quite sure, um, what to do next. Um, I, I think, I think it's, um, it's something that's so hard to describe on one hand, but so super simple and elegantly described on another hand, um, that hip hop culture in built form is what I want people to think about when they think about hip hop architecture. So that's the kind of um, 30 second elevator pitch version. Um, but I don't want people to get lost in that simplicity. I want people to understand the complexity of it that um, hip hop as a culture is a phenomenon that is, uh, has outpaced anything anybody expected it to. Um, 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Um, we're coming up on its official 50th anniversary um, in, in 2023. Um, but it's, it's, it's a force that virtually anyone, any sentient being in the Western world is, is connected to, not just in the Western world, across the globe, right? Um, and uh, understanding our relationship with this phenomenon as a social, cultural, political movement um, should help us understand why it affects architecture and how it affects architecture. And that um, architecture really is intended to reflect the social consciousness, the social awarenesses of, um, of, of our times, of any social or political or cultural movement. So um, hip hop architecture is really trying to understand or put a put a nice little box around um, as many of those things that are trying to align with hip-hop culture but shape built environments at the same time and simultaneously it's it's avoiding that box it's it's realizing that that little box doesn't want to be nice and 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 comfortable um, that hip hop is something that has constantly defied definition and it's constantly re-editing itself and um, redefining itself. Um, so of course, hip hop architecture is something that's gonna keep redefining itself as well. Yeah, um, 
You know, I, I asked the question because I know that's the question most people just ask, right? What is what is this thing, you know, you're talking about? Um, and we're going to unpack that because I think the question, or maybe a more accurate question, is like maybe what is the re- relationality between hip hop and architecture, or in which ways um, can the techniques or the even the construction um, of hip hop influence architecture, or even how can architecture provide frames uh, through which we can understand um, hip hop? And exactly, you know, in in speaking with you, and also just being a witness to your work and your presentations, it really blew me away because you know you just said that. And first of all, I would also like to let people know that I am not a hip hop aficionado. Um, I barely, I barely know what I'm talking about. I actually learned more about hip hop from researching for this interview than I knew prior to. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for that, Seku. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found really fascinating was the ways in which the refusal. Um, the refusal that black and brown individuals had, particularly in inner cities, um, around design, around the systems that they found themselves in. And when I spoke earlier about the ways in which your work influenced my work, um, was really that frame of understanding that these these tenets of hip hop, um, you know, remixing, you know, and scratching and others that we'll talk about later actually help us better understand what it means to subvert um, and almost refuse um, the systems that we find ourselves in, or at least refuse the design functions that we find ourselves in, right? Like, so for instance, um, you know, you speak so eloquently about what does it mean to do the thing you're not supposed to do to a record which number one is touch it, right? And then not only touch it, but this thing that is designed to go forward in a very kind of particular way, you actually then go backwards, right? You actually um, scratch it. Um, and in that process, in that refusal, um, in that subversion of design, as predicted, you actually is actually a point of invention. Yeah, for sure. Um- uh, and I think this is where we start to make tangible these things that seem so intangible at first. Um, uh, people almost automatically start start from a place of thinking that hip hop and architecture are two very disparate fields and two very disparate terms, and we're just kind of mashing up and and putting two things together that don't seem to fit. Um, but if we really um, start to understand the nature of urban environments, the, the ways that people navigate a city, um, the ways that contemporary design philosophy has changed over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we realize that, that hip hop is, is, is essential in that, in that conversation. Um, I, I once said that um, you can't really have um, a full conversation about urban, urbanism without talking about hip-hop. and can't really talk about a full conversation about hip-hop without talking about urbanism and urban design, right? Because 
they're both influencing each other continually, consistently. And so, yeah, you're right. There, there are ways that we're extracting processes and, and, and tenets and ideologies from hip hop and trying to bring them into the design world. So like layering and scratching and sampling and these different methods that you talk about. Um, it also includes things like um, digging through the crates, like what a DJ does, which is really unearthing and unmasking all of these lost histories, these musical histories that are a part of our cultural reality that we may have forgotten about or didn't understand but then you bring it into a contemporary framework and then now we have a new appreciation of it, right? Um, and that's a process that is so critical to any um, contemporary architect or anybody who's working in a historically significant part of a city or significant part of the world um, on a building scale or on a, um, a city scale, right? So um, I, I am always looking for these different ways that that are completely in line with um with the way that hip-hop has framed itself that are directly applicable to how we address um design and like you talk about with the record it's 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 also about using technology in ways that it wasn't it wasn't supposed to be used, right? So what is our general approach to technology? We sit back and we consume. Um, hip hop says, no, we have to actually disrupt that piece of technology and create, um, use it, um, allow it to become something that is an innovative uh, piece of, 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 of a musical instrument or uh, a shaper of a space or, um, uh, uh, an intersection, an inter-disruptor force within um, some kind of environment. Yeah, it, it it makes me think about, you know, kind of like, you know, when you said, you know, make, uh, you know, kind of, you know, subvert design or use technology in a way in which it was not designed. My first thought was actually... Um, about phone payments and how that was actually, <laughs> you know, like, like Apple pay or something like that, uh-huh, which uh-huh. was actually happening on the African continent, yes. right? You actually had Africans using their cell phones, flip phones, right. Mm-hmm. To kind of have this barter payment system for years before it made it mm-hmm. to the iPhone. And so, you know, thinking about this, this and this and for me this is that is that is the black imagination that is that yeah. is um the catalyst right mm-hmm. um for innovation but it's really about that hack it's really yeah. about the hack of it um which is really kind of a, a bellwether or or a signifier um mm-hmm. of something future to come mm-hmm. um and also thinking about um just the ways in which hip hop is also an archival kind of process as well. Like it is reconstituting, right. It is reconstituting um, a body of work that, you know, perhaps may have been lost, right? Like there's so many records, like even, Actually, I my grandmother has actually been sampled. <laughs> my gra- like the East St. Louis Gospelettes has been sampled 
Fat Joe. Like it's uh, it's kind of a like kind of a cult thing. Um, but for you personally, I mean, you know, kind of circling back to like origins, you know, coming mm-hmm. from Jamaica, like when when was your love of hip hop birthed, and like what did hip hop give you access to? Yeah, it, it, the the fascinating thing about hip hop is that it has this really um, powerful connection and um, to Jamaica as a as a place, um, not just Jamaican music, but the, to the people as well. Um, you know, Cool Herc was was um, Jamaican. Um, he actually threw his first party a year or two after coming back from Jamaica and seeing the dance halls and seeing these massive stereo systems in the big open yard and people just um, dancing outside. Um, and this is his first, um, his first um, uh, uh, experience with toasting where the DJs were the ones who were um, not just changing the, the records, but they would shout people out in the crowd and talk over the records and kind of say things. And so um, in Jamaica, our MCs, we call them DJs, you know, so the dance hall DJs, they're not the ones spinning the records, they're the ones who are talking over the tracks. Um, and, uh, and we can see even contemporary pop music, hip hop and all other kinds of pop music, there's a deep influence of Jamaican music that, that's in there constantly. I remember listening to the top 40, like uh, maybe five or six years ago, I was like, like 50% of these songs are, have some kind of, some kind of Jamaican music embedded within it. This is when like Drake had one dance out, which is a dance hall track. And, um, and uh, what's the name? Justin Bieber had this song, Sorry. And I was like, why do I like Justin Bieber? Why do I like this song? I was like, oh, it's a dance hall song. Of course, that's why I like it. Um, uh, so uh, the, the, the musical influences that I grew up with are not anywhere different from the musical influences at the, at the root of, of, of hip hop. Um, so uh, reggae and dance hall are part of my DNA growing up. Um, and hip hop is something that we understood from afar and knew. And just like most Jamaicans, I have um, American cousins and we would come up and visit uh, New York in the summertime. Um, and, you know, my cousins in Brooklyn and the Bronx and, um, and in New Jersey. And I remember I have clear memories of jumping on, on, jumping, um, on a bed uh, either in the Bronx or in Brooklyn to, to Curtis Blow's These Are the Breaks. Um, that would have been the summer of 81. Um, and that was like the hot song that summer. Um, and, and so that was my earliest introduction to it. But it wasn't until I came back for, for college in the, in the mid-90s that I really got my full introduction to hip-hop music. And, and that's the era that most people uh, refer to as the golden age of hip-hop you know, with uh, Biggie and Nas and Tupac and, and um, all those guys who were 
expanding like um, Bad Boy Records and Death Row Records and Snoop and 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 uh, Dr. Dre on the West Coast, kind of making their 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 name for themselves. Um, so uh, most of my cultural references around hip hop are still embedded within that era. Um, I still stay minorly contemporary, but it's it's. Um, you know, it's still not my heart and soul. It's still just something that I, I um, understand and enjoy from an observer point of view, right? And but like you know, being a young man from Jamaica, um, you know, landing back in the states um, in this golden era of hip hop, like, did it like what was it like listening to these stories? Right, like you're coming from Jamaica, which uh-huh. is you know a majority black country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with its own, you know, histories, obviously, but then encountering mm-hmm. this very, you know, black American, and then also this very black American like sound, right? With these different, very urban stories, like mm-hmm. as, as a source of identity, even like, what was that reconciliation as you entered into the States? Well, the, it, it's, um, what I was most aware of, uh, especially when it comes to identity, was that um, my individuality um, was not enough. It was, um, there was a kind of collective identity that um, the, this country kind of assimilates you into. Um, you know, uh, no one cares whether you're African or or from the Caribbean or from South America, um, they just care if you're black, right? When you come to this country, you're just black. It doesn't matter. You could speak Spanish or Portuguese or French and they're like, oh, you're just, you're just another black dude, right? Nobody cares, right? Um, So uh, my, our, our natural affiliation, our natural, um, place to gravitate towards is is with the African American and and within that community, and so that's where um, you start to internally have these dialogues about the the relationship between um, Jamaicanness, people from the island, people in the diaspora of Jamaicanness, people who. Um, are Jamaican from Brooklyn or from Queens and and their parents are Jamaican, but they grew up within the culture, but they're still um, African-American. And then those who um, can trace their history back to the the slaves uh, on this continent, right? Um, it's, it's a different kind of um, internal conversation that happens when you uh, arrive here in this country than the, the conversation that happens outwardly in the rest of the country, the rest of the world, then you're just having the same black-white conversation, right? Um, so you, you find where your affiliation groups are, you find who, um, who you share uh, common histories with, um, and then there's an identity that you are um, given or, or is, is assigned to you versus the identity that you bring for yourself. So anyone entering college in an American context is going to have similar um, identity um, issues or similar ways of finding themselves, quote unquote, um, 
you know, even Black Americans who grew up in um, middle-class communities or suburban communities uh, confronting kids that went to public school and, um, in, and may have gotten into Ivy League University on a different kind of scholarship level than, than they have. And, but then the outside world just sees them all as Black. So everyone, I think, at the age, the first um, wave of college has this, this moment of confronting their Blackness. And I did mm. too. Mm. You know, I, I love this. I love this conversation, um, especially when you speak about, you know, coming to the U.S. and having this identity put upon you, mm-hmm. you know, which you, I guess, quickly had to get up to speed with and understand what the hell, <laughs> you know, people me. are talking about. But it, actually, there's this interview that you gave in Metropolis um, where mm. you said, if you can label something. Uh-huh. then you can appropriate it. Uh-huh. And then you can own it. Double tap on that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's one of the oldest tricks in the book. <laughs> that's one of their oldest games. It's like, let's, let's name it. Let's give things a name. Let's put a flag on it. You know, um, The more things that we can put flags on and crests on and our names on and our titles on, these are the ways that we can own them. Um, if you look at the difference between um, like how Native, um, Native American and indigenous peoples here or across different um, continents name or give name to different uh, things or places, they'll call it like moves really fast or rising sun or um, narrow way. Um, and, uh, and then Europeans name things after somebody's last name like this is from john the conqueror this is washington this is lincoln this is you know um and it's it's part of um that ownership mentality is also part of wanting to um control the land but it's it's really essentially a way of uh of fighting the fear of death it's 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 about it's about um, trying to maintain immortality somehow. It's trying to maintain life beyond, um, beyond your own mortality. Uh, there's a saying about, um, you know, you're, you live as long as, and as people remember you, right? Um, and as soon as no one else is left on the planet to remember who you are, or remember your name, then that's when you truly die. Uh, so this is that this is part of that this is part of that um that whole exercise this is that whole mentality um that you know it's it's not ours it's not part of who we are i think and i think we have to confront it wherever we see it show up and when you say ours you mean as black people as black people in america black people across the diaspora it's not part of who we are um, it's not our natural way of being, like defining, putting things in a box, defining things in a very strict way, um, putting our name on things, putting our flags on things. Yes, we were kings and emperors and queens and conquerors, and um, and we we had value, we had possessions and lands, and we owned slaves at different ways. But it's 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 um, 
the, the kind of subjugation of uh, humanity is not part of our natural um, system. We, we lived in alignment with nature and with the earth and not in trying to control it and subjugate it. Yeah, I mean, I love, you know, well, I love linguistics. I love <laughs> words, you know, because I, because, you know, the thing with words is that they actually obfuscate the essence of the thing, mm -hmm. right? Like, I think people forget that um, the words are just symbols. They're actually stand-ins. They are um, almost like a membrane between um, the, you know, the sign, right? They are the sign versus the thing signified. Um, and if we get stuck at word level, then we never get into like the essence, right? We actually lose the essence of the thing that's being named, um, which, you know, and, and even in my studying of like other languages, learning how much the English language itself is designed, right? And I think mm -hmm. of language as yeah. design, um, is designed for control. It is designed for yeah. the naming. It is designed for categorization. Um, mm -hmm. Rarely is it, you know, it's it's not really great for expressing like nuance of the human experience, um, mm -hmm. but kind of bringing it back to hip hop, you know, there's, you know, in in your book you mentioned uh, in speaking about uh, the misogyny that exists mm -hmm. in in hip hop. You know, you mm -hmm. you you list a lot of scholars um, mm -hmm. who who have done that work, and you say that uh, I'm sure they have as much trouble defending their um, male subjects, right, in hip-hop as you do having in defending yeah. Kanye West, uh, which we don't, we don't have to double tap on. But in this conversation, but in this conversation of labels, there uh -huh. is someone who kind of bridges this gap between uh -huh. architecture um, and hip-hop, which is Virgil. Uh -huh. And yes. he just, he recently um, just opened a show. Well, a show was opened about him um, mm. at the Brooklyn Museum, um, mm. kind of spanning his over of work in his 41 years. Mm. But there was something that I think was never really explored fully mm. was his use of labels mm. Mm -hmm. and the ways in which it was almost his medium, like his yeah. artistic medium to play with. Yeah. Um, but in 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 that kind of bridging that Virgil was doing, like what role do you feel you know he plays right in our cultural understanding yeah. of a quote unquote hip hop architecture? Yeah, I mean he was definitely um, a master of semiotics, right? Like um, the 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 sign and the signified, and um, he was always playing with that. Um, about how something is named or whether it is named and, you know, whether you, we understood his intentions behind what he was doing with, with logo and, um, and shoelace and, and things like that. Um, we, we still have to acknowledge that um, it, it, it brought up different ideas and thoughts and philosophies for us about why something needs a logo, why something needs to be called something, why something needs to be named something, and and what our awareness of it, how our awareness of its labeling shifts our perception of it. So 
um, yeah, he definitely understood the the use of the word in in, in many ways. I think he um, had a whole, you know, a whole lot of um, of a whole lot to add to the conversation around hip hop architecture, and he was actually. Um, you know, he's actually the interview that I was um, sad to to not get uh, for that book while I was writing it. Um, you know, he uh, I, I I sent him a copy of the book um, after it was published, um, but I I in asking for the original interview request, he turned me down. He was a bit busy running <laughs> running Louis Vuitton and and a fashion line and um, opening stores and changing the world. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think he's somebody who's definitely invested in the hip hop project as a DJ, as um, as a um, as a protege of of Kanye. Um, as uh, someone um, steeped into the fashion industry and, and defining hip hop within that space. Um, uh, and he's someone that we all know in the design field that he uh, studied architecture and was influential in the forming of different spaces, his own stores and so forth. Um, so yeah, he's somebody who's embedded within that conversation that I really wanted to get a sense from him, how he thought about himself fitting within the, that context. But I think, um, I use him quite a lot as an example when people are asking for practitioners or people who fit within that, that space. Um, they're usually looking for people who build buildings, but, um, uh, I like to talk about him as a practitioner. I like to talk about Theaster Gates, um, Lauren Halsey, um, Olalekan Jafis, um, uh, all of whom have built uh, spaces and environments that people can inhabit, um, but have never practiced anything that is um could be called architecture <laughs> right mm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so uh it, but it just changes your perspective on what architecture actually means and who are the practitioners of architecture and um how they relate again to um hip-hop culture and how hip-hop culture can actually shift and change um the design discipline of architecture <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I'm bringing it like all the way back even to this conversation between architecture and hip hop. Um, you you mentioned in your book, which I found hilarious, um, <laughs> that you said that you kind of er had an early misidentification um, in saying that Robert Moses was the mm -hmm. father of yeah. hip hop, yeah, the actual father of hip hop. And for listeners who do not know who Robert Moses was, uh, Robert Moses um, was the head of the New York Parks Department, um, but was really Machia Machiavellian um, mm -hmm. in the way in which he wielded power um, so that he really single-handedly shaped the urban landscape of New York, um, you know, putting highways, you know, in the middle of black neighborhoods and completely, you know, disrupting them, particularly in the Bronx with the BQE. Um, he also, um, you know, changed the parkways, the bridges on parkways in the New York mm -hmm. area so that like actually access to the beaches, he 
made the overpasses lower than was the state regulation so that public buses actually could not make it <laughs> under them, which mm. actually prevented the public from making it to beaches. So you actually had to have a car to get to the mm. beaches. So if you want to know more about Robert Moses, you can Google him. Um, mm. But he, he also that, once had the, uh-huh. the, the Triborough Bridge was also once his own bank account for, for several years. He built the Triborough Bridge. No one else had access to those accounts. Everybody who was paying tolls, the, the first several years of the Triborough Bridge were going into an account that only he had access to. <laughs> this guy was fascinating. And, and, ne- and, and at some point didn't have any official title in the city. He just had this power. It's amazing, but go ahead. <laughs> no, so, no, but in saying that, you know, what did what was that? What was that first? Mis- like, why was that a first mistake? Why, why did you even think that Robert Moses, right, this guy, is actually the real father of hip hop? Yeah, it started. It started with some some earlier conversations about um, about connecting, um, you know, uh, architecture as a symbol. Um, the buildings that people grew up in, the buildings that were a part of the landscape of the South Bronx at the time, or even the towers that are um, where 1520 Cedric Avenue is, um, that these are um, uh, um, a derivation of the the Plan Vincent, the, the these towers in the park that were designed by Le Corbusier, um, as a as a provocation for how to transform the city of Paris and to clear the slums there, and this is how people should live in the future, and that you know, uh, like Corbusier never really never really in, instituted that, it got away with that in Paris, but um, Robert Moses um, got away with a lot of those in 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 um, in Manhattan and the Bronx and so forth, um, and. Uh, so it, it was kind of this interesting provocation that architecture could be at the moment of birth of, of hip hop culture. And that was this, this hook that was important. But as I say in the book, it, it's like the, the, the biggest problem with that is giving all of this agency and power again to these white men and ignoring um, the agency and the pioneering spirit of the true um, hip hop architects, the true architects of hip hop, um, who are you know Flash, Cool Herc, Bombada, um, those um, these are high school kids, right? <laughs> these are kids. I mean, Bam might have been out of high school. I mean, like not graduated from high school, but not in high school, but high school age kids. Right. Um, and it was a way for them to have fun and keep off the streets and stay out of gangs. And um, because gang culture was was very, very real in the South Bronx, Bronx at that time. Um, so uh, uh, we have to give credit where credit's due and, and decentralize the white male figure, which is always the center of all these conversations and um, re empower these these black and brown kids who were were amazingly um, innovative and and um, futuristic pioneers, right? Yeah, I, I I love it because I I got what you meant, right? Like that these designers, um, these architects um, created these 
kind of conditions in which right these yeah. these these moments could happen which in a way if you think about it is actually the first point of refusal actually exactly. like that's actually the first design before a hand ever touched a record mm-hmm. it was actually even the the subversion of space and space making that was mm-hmm. almost like the the, the catalyst um, for hip hop mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know for for listeners in thinking about um, places that exist right based off of these um, these ideas of both Robert Moses and Le Cabousier, his uh, Ville Radius, um, something like a Sty Town, right? Stuyvesant, Stuyvesant yes, Town yeah. in, Stuy in New Tower York City. For sure. Classic example. Which, which is so much a part of um, the history of racism in architecture and the built environment, um, especially knowing that there was a black female architect who worked on the project, mm-hmm. Beverly uh, Lorraine Green, mm. who was, I think she was the first licensed African-American woman architect in America, in Illinois, in like 1942. So that mm. there was actually a black woman who actually worked on the Stytown project mm-hmm. and actually couldn't even live there, um, yeah. which is kind of wild to think mm-hmm. about. Um, but also, like kind of with this, kind of like addressing this racist history and architecture, like how can this also be a space in which black individuals can find like healing and mm-hmm. understanding. Yeah. I think the, like how do we reclaim these spaces? Yeah. I, th- I think it starts with that, that joy, right. That, you know, again, it was kids trying to find outlets and places to um, thrive within um, <laughs> a literally apocalyptic landscape. Right. Um, you see some of the pictures of the South Bronx in the in the late '60s and early '70s, and and you, it, they're almost indistinguishable indis, from images of Hiroshima after the bomb, right? It's 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 um, it's these are spaces where people were literally looking to have fun, and um, it's one of the one of the highest exemplar of of black joy that you can find. Um, and that there is not just joy, but liberation in these spaces that, that, that people create, that it's, um, you know, once someone um, finds something that, um, that, that comes from their own hands or their own ingenuity or their own um, visualization, and it can become real and other people can can respond to it and re- react to it and um, enjoy it and um, see themselves in it. If someone can see themselves in your work, then it just changes the whole calculus of everything, right? Um, it's, it's, it's very, very different than um, the ideology of, uh, of having a, a, a really high standard that people have to meet and that people, um, are aspiring to create and then it's like oh that's architecture that's that's what they mean um but then people feel um restricted and sterile and um feel not themselves in those spaces and um they have no real emotional connection to those things so um uh the the joy is joy especially black joy is is um is is deeply integrated and embedded within the entire project of hip-hop 
Um, it's been there. It's been there from the beginning. It's been there from the beginning. Yeah, like I, 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 I get a little annoyed sometimes when when people suggest little every single hip hop thing that comes across their way to them. But um, but there is this Netflix series a few years back called The Get Down, um, and what was great about that series, um, it 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 got a little soap poppy, soap opera-y, um, but it um it was just showing it really highlighted how these were all kids right and how r- oppressive the environment was and they were just trying to be kids <laughs> and they were just trying to find a space to have fun and that um and there's a few moments early on in the series where you know you're going through all of these um derelict depressive environments and they go around the corner and all of a sudden there's a party and something is happening here and you get this sensation like oh wow what is this and how can we be down with that and um i don't know what's happening here but this is great um so uh yeah the spirit of that is really really um fantastic to me and something that i always want to bring into all the projects that i do Speaking of projects that you do, <laughs> why architecture? Like, why are you even an architect? Like, what is it? I don't know. What idea. is it about the profession? I have an idea. I should probably be a, a, um, a carpenter or something. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, I, 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 believe it or not, I wanted to be an architect since I was five years old. Um, one of those crazy beings who decided that at, this, at that early age. Um, I, I was the the way I tell it, uh, you know, I, I was always, I always loved to draw. Um, it was a great way for me to just like spend my time and, and digest the world through, through putting things on paper. Um, and I was good at drawing and, you know, I, I liked the, the sense of drawing and kids coming around to see what I was drawing and, and, um, it's almost like a spectator sport sometimes. Uh, and as also the kid who would like take my toys apart to see how they worked and how they fit together, you know, to see all the little clicking mechanisms, um, which, which always frustrates parents, right? Um, my poor mother. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, um, I remember having a conversation with my, with my grandmother, about loving to draw. And she was like, oh yeah, there's these guys who draw, um, who draw buildings and, you know, they're the ones who are responsible for all the buildings that we see around. They're called architects. Like, oh, that's, that sounds kind of cool. I think I want to be an architect. And I decided that at five and I told everybody, cause you know, at five years old, everybody's asking you, what are you going to be when you grow up? Which is one of the, probably one of the worst fucking questions you can ask a five-year-old child (laughs) like don't ask them what they want to be ask them what they like to do ask them what they have fun where they find their fun ask them what the name of their toys are (laughs) ask them which planet they like to visit you know don't ask them what they want to do for a living What, what you know you're trying to put these people into these categories of jobs before they're even like in high school. It's, it's, it's sad. 
Um, but anyway, I kind of decided that that's what I wanted to do, that how I would answer that question. And I had no, and I really still had no idea what it really was. Um, and then um, I was very, very lucky to have um, uh, an older sister who decided at a reasonable age that she wanted to be an architect. Um, she's five years older than I am and she didn't decide till maybe her last year of high school that she wanted to do architecture, which is, which makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and so she kind of paved the way for me. She got into architecture school. She um, emigrated to the US and started off at City College and then transferred to Cornell after a couple of years. And then um, before her last, and then she basically um, told me that Cornell is where I needed to be if I wanted to be an architect. And she basically literally filled out the application for me and got my mom to, got my parents to, to give the $60 application fee. And, um, or maybe, I can't even remember, maybe my sister even put up the $60 application fee. I can't remember that. But she helped me put my portfolio together, like literally took pictures of all my artwork and bought the, the materials and helped me put it all together and submit it in time. Talked on the back end to the administrators who are reviewing all this stuff to make sure that my stuff was getting processed. The only part I did was just write the essay, right? Um, and so she single-handedly got me into Cornell. And yeah, at that point, I, I still didn't know what architecture was, <laughs> right? Um, and I sometimes say that I graduated from architecture school and still didn't know what architecture was. Uh, you know, it's in the profession that I started really understanding what this thing really is and what we actually do. Um, and yeah, and and... And, uh, and I'm still kind of figuring it out as I go right now, you know, 20 years. Down yeah. What did you, what did you, what did you learn once you got into the field of what you actually do? What do people think architects are? And then what do they actually do? <laughs> <laughs> I think people think architects are what George Costanza think architects are, <laughs> you know, something like a really fun, cool thing to say at parties that you are and uh, people respect you and say, oh, that sounds like a cool thing. Um, uh, sometimes people think that architects just draw houses and you come to an architect and they give you a drawing and then you're done. Um, and, then you, and then you pay for that drawing. Um, and uh, and and inside architects, architects have developed a reputation for being um, elitist, um, arrogant, um, egotistical, um, which we are in many cases, for sure. Um, it's it's part of our training to 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 be that way, um, but. Uh, <clears throat> You know, it's, but it's hard to describe what we truly do without sounding like we have a God complex <laughs> because um, architects are, are really interpreters and shapers of the built environment. And we do some of the most magical things where we're taking ideas and turning them into physical reality. <laughs> 
right? Um, like turning ideas into um, habitable space is, is pure magic. Like it's an idea. It's not even tangible. It's completely ephemeral. Um, but you, you're translating that. You're listening to that. Um, but for anybody who knows anything about architecture, I usually say that um, our primary responsibility is not to the client. It's not to um, the budget, for sure. It's not to the, um, the codes or the rules or the governmental agencies that we have to um, work with. Uh, our responsibility is definitely not to our own, uh, to our own um, artistic will. Um, and not even, our responsibility is not even to the end users, which is what all this health, safety, and wellness code stuff is about. Our responsibility is primarily to the project. <laughs> and when you think about it that way, then you have to understand the, pro the project as a kind of um, living, breathing thing that is attempting to come to life. And we're here to guide it into life. We're here to interpret what the, what the project wants to be and understand it in as deep a way as we can. Um, and translate that into images and drawings and notes and ideas that other people can understand in order to bring it into this world. Um, and, and that's the most kind of um, philosophical, fantastical that I get when I describe what architects do. Um, but yeah, but, you know, going down this road with this work that I'm doing around hip hop and architecture, a lot of that is shifting and changing and not changing as much as evolving, right? It's evolving into a place where I'm, under, I'm acknowledging that, um, that um, other people have to be part of the process as well. And that... Um, no single person can be responsible for a project from beginning to end. It has to be um, a collaboration of several people. Um, and the more you get communities involved in public spaces or spaces that affect their lives, um, the more agency you give to those people and the more empowered they feel, the more connected they feel to the work that's being produced. And that takes a huge, huge, huge um, diminution of ego. You know, you have to put your, your ego way, way, way in the back seat to allow someone else who isn't, hasn't gone through the training that you have to actually drive the bus for a little bit and help shape exactly what the project is going to look like. Um, you have to let go of your preconceptions of exactly what it's supposed to be and allow it to be something that you didn't expect. Amazing. I'm so glad that you kept talking because you did you did slip into um the celestial plane there for, <laughs> for, for a second. Um but you know I I can only imagine, you know, walking into this field wanting to be you know an architect since you were 5 um and then getting into it and and going through this very classical kind of architecture training and and understanding that 
that those who have manifested, you know, the world um, that we exist in mm-hmm. have been doing it through the lens of their own kind of reduced um, and specific uh, way of seeing the world. Yeah. One that maybe didn't yeah. map onto your own, you know, lived experience. Exactly. Um, and I'm sure at times like, you know, that also created moments of friction if we want to be diplomatic about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um within yourself and like so how how did you still manage to create or or maybe even use that um when you came across like difficulties and challenges and people mm-hmm. who wanted to challenge you mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's um i get i get versions of this question sometimes um usually from from students who uh don't understand how I get to be at a place where I'm this brash sometimes or this um, self-certain or or um, can conduct myself in a way where I kind of don't give a fuck a lot of times. Um, and, and it comes from um, having gone through adversity, right? Like adversity teaches you quite a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, comes from a place of almost almost losing my, almost losing my, my career, my teaching career, right. Um, or my, my teaching career being threatened, um, in, in, um, in the middle of my time at Syracuse. Uh, and I realized that I started out trying to do things one way, which was the way that I thought it should be done. Um, and then I was told, no, (laughs) that way is no good do it our way. And then I shaped my career around doing it, doing the things the way that they wanted it to be done. And then they're like, no, you're not good enough to do these things that way. And then I'm like, fuck it. Why would I do something your way when you don't accept it the same way you didn't accept it when I would try to do it my way? So after that, I was just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to do it in the way that I think it's best going to serve the thing that needs to be done. Um, And uh, that kind of attitude changed everything and just allowed me to just get into the spaces that I really wanted to get to and do the work that I really wanted to do and um, do it in the way that I wanted to do it, you know? and in that, just being really um, observant and aware and conscious of the surroundings at all times. And if you're observant and aware and conscious, then you can actually start to document the things that you see and the things that you observe and, and um, share that perspective with as many people as you can. And sometimes people listen and sometimes people think that the things that you say aren't so crazy and and then people start to support your work and that's that's the only explanation i have yeah i am one of those recipients on the other end of (laughs) your uh one of your you know adversity um one of those moments of adversity but like In that, like, what 
who did you have to become? Like, what did you learn about yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, I had to become somebody who um, worked a lot, <laughs> worked really hard. Um, but it wasn't just, you know, a lot of times you hear people talk about, oh, you got to work really hard. You got to work a lot and work long hours. And, um, but for me, it's all a joy. You really, really just have to be in love with what you do. And it doesn't, it's not like you do a whole lot of stuff and then figure out a way of falling in love with the things that you do. You, you do, you follow, you, you feel the feeling of love first. And then you follow that feeling wherever it takes you. And if you're doing something and you keep feeling that feeling of love, then that becomes passion. Then it becomes motivation. Then it keeps going and going and going. And then you don't feel like you're working at all. Um, you, you just, um, uh, and hearing that, hearing that feeling of love or being aware and attuned to that feeling of love means that you have to tune everything else out. (laughs) I'm sure you've heard that a lot of times that people have to just like quiet all the noise around them and focus in a specific direction. Um, And that's what happens, you know, when a lot of people around you say negative things or say a lot of shit that, 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 that hurts you inside, um, you can either listen to it and wallow in it and allow it to pull you down, or you wake up and you realize that shit's about them and it's not about me. And I don't really care to listen to it. I'm just going to do the thing that I want to do. Um, because this is where my joy is. This is where love is. This is where my passion is. And that's what's, that's what's leading to, to my, my, my happiness and my peace. So it's, yeah. What is love? Putting it. <laughs> yeah. What does love feel like? <laughs> I mean, if, if, if we have to explain the feeling of love to a human being, then they're not really human. Um, love <laughs> love is not something that we we explain to each other. Love is something that we just embody and we share, right? And when you, f- it's, you know, when people talk about romantic love, they say the thing, this, the, the, the thing in the same way all the time. They say, um, they say, uh, you know, um, you, you, you'll know it when you, when you get there. You'll just know. You'll just know. Um, yeah, but we can put romantic love in a little box and put it aside. But with, with love in general, it's, you know, you have to know because it's, it's, it's truly our natural state of being. It's, our, it's, our, it's, it's, it's what we are. We are beings of love, you know? It's like, it's like a, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like a tuning fork, right? Um, if you hit a tuning fork of a certain note, the same tuning fork of that note will vibrate without being hit, right? Um, 
So if, if I hit a C note, if I hit a C on tuning fork and I have a whole range of, of uh, notes going there of in a whole packet of tuning forks, only the C will vibrate out of all of the different notes that I have. So if I am love and somebody hits the love tuning fork, I'm going to vibrate. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to feel it. Um, so love is re- like resonance. Yeah, there's love a, is resonance. There's a res- it's, it's, it's vibration. Resonance, alignment. Um, Absolutely. Gravity, almost. Um, there's a... There's a there's a link, there's a draw. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we're having this conversation. Um, I'm not sure when we'll publish it, but I would say mm-hmm. just keep an eye on your DMs um, okay. afterwards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, good. You know, um, but like as, as we like kind of navigate, like, you know, um, this landscape of creativity, you know, of design, you know, uh, you know, of, of hip hop, of, you know, you know, post-colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what advice would you give to someone who also is young, right? Who thinks about architecture and design, but doesn't, you know, f- fully understand it, like, where should they even start? Mm. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of places to go to get advice about um, about starting a career in architecture or wanting to immerse oneself in design. Um, a lot of places that will give bad advice (laughs) and that will um, lead people into years and years of, of struggle and, and strife and depression. Um, uh, Most of those places are highly institutionalized places. Um, Things that are, um, if something has been around for decades or almost a century and has had the same mission or a similar mission for many or most of those decades um, and isn't anywhere closer to achieving any of those, those missions, then they're probably not an institution that you want to align yourself with or, or put a whole lot of hope into um, getting the kind of results that you want out of them, that they're going to guess they're, they're finally going to solve the, the, the issue of, 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 uh, low participant representation of blackness in architecture. Finally, <laughs> they're going to solve it soon. I'm going to hold out and it's going to come within the next few years. Um, you know, that's, those are places that I, I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time I, I would find people who speak a language that speaks to you. Somebody who is doing something that you want to be doing. Someone who is um, 
who has come from a place that's similar to where you've come from and speaks a language that you understand. Um, and yeah, and when, and someone who, when they, when they, you know, hit their tuning fork, you start to vibrate. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. You know, it's actually as you even speak about it, it it actually takes me back to hip hop. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, hip hop almost as pedagogy, yeah. um, because you speak um, in your book. You know, there are these kind of core tenets of hip hop, like that it's palimpsetic, palimpset meaning um, layered, right? Like there are Mm -hmm. things that come before and things get stacked on top of it. You know, hip hop is anthropomorphic, it's performative, you know, and adaptive. Yeah. And in a way, it's almost the way one approaches, I think any, any kind of like profession or desire, right? It's, it's this kind of step of Mm -hmm. one understanding kind of what came before, Mm -hmm. Right, like, what is the world that you are uh, inhabiting? Right, like, yeah. what are we walking into? Yeah. Um, which you know, hip hop does almost as you actually you say in the in the book, like bricolage. Actually, right, uh-huh. that hip hop does it in this kind of bricolage way, you know, and then this this anthropomorphism, right? That that understanding that you know, like you said, if there's if there's an institution. That mission that has a mission that it has not lived up to, right? Like that means that this thing is not even alive, yeah. right? So this kind of anthropomorphism, understanding that that this is something that is um, wanting to to exist, it has its own essence, yeah. and then this idea of you know performativity, right? Like that there is also a presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is something that is in dialogue almost, right? Like that it is communicative, that we are Mm -hmm. in community, you know, and then it's also adaptive, right? So that it is also something that can change or evolve um, over time. So Mm -hmm. that, that's, I mean, kind of it. I mean, hip hop (laughs) is a pedagogical process as well into entering, I think, you know, anything, Um, Mm -hmm. but kind of, you know, you spoke about institutions and education and, you know, in our own kind of private conversations, I know education and how one even structures it is something that you're heavily interested in and like yeah. invested in and kind of shaping. Could you, could you speak about that and like this process that you're quite interested in and kind of reshaping education? Yeah. Yeah. Thank It's, it's a, um, it's, it's, uh, a, a real um, long project. It's a it's a long, long goal kind of project. Um, it's um, and you know I, I I think it's just something that's been programmed into me from as as a kid. You know, before I was even wanting to be an architect at five years old, I was teaching. I was always teaching kids around me, teaching kids in. Um, in my age group or younger than me. And I've been, uh, I've kind of naturally been teaching most of my life. And I think definitely comes from my, my mother, um, who's a lifelong teacher. My father has taught, my sister teaches, um, many, many people in my mother's family teach, um, and have PhDs and things like that. There's a, there's a big history of academics in my, in my, um, family. Um, 
So um, I think I naturally gravitated towards academia after after um, college, even though I resisted it for many years. Um, and, you know, because I just wanted to practice. I just wanted to be a practitioner, learn how to be an architect, learn how to draw, learn how to build, learn how to deal with clients and contractors and learn how to detail. Like detailing is such a such an art form that so few um, people that I have ever come across know how to do really well. Um, but I, I also fell in love with teaching pretty early on in my, in, in academia, um, in my academic career, um, because there was just this, um, sense that, um, my own interpretations of these ideas that I get from other people beforehand can, can now be translated and, and, and consumed by others. And then it takes on a new shape. Um, and there's this recognition that um, you're carrying on this tradition that is, is hundreds of thousands of years old since the beginning of humanity. Like we're always like, this is how we, 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 we create knowledge. This is how we transfer knowledge. We're always, somebody's teaching somebody else. Or um, in, you know, if, in like the Star, Star Wars tradition is like the, the, the Jedi and the apprentice and they're like teaching each other. There's always a, a master and an apprentice and there's always some kind of following. Um, so I've been fascinated by that. And I, and I think um, the, the lore of teaching um, pulled me into academia, <laughs> uh, which is um, a space that, um, uh, has evolved for me into a means to an end um, because of my my general love of institutions <laughs> that you, can, you you may have sensed before. Um, yeah, like I, I, I really am not a fan of institutions or um, especially the institution of academia, um, of higher education, or supposedly higher education. I don't think it is what it's what it was meant to be. Um, I think it's fallen short in many, many aspects. Um, I'm happy that I invested myself to the place where I was able to understand and learn about research. Um, I didn't really understand research fully until after immersing myself into academia and after going back to grad school later on in life and then starting my writing practice, like writing as a practice is something that um, I didn't think I would ever fully invest myself into, but I, I'm happy I have. Um, uh, and so that's allowed me to get to this next phase, which is where I'm I, I'm imagining a way of 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 educating designers and architects that isn't anything that that is standard within the world of academia right now. Um, and my current place of of my current starting point is within the urban design program here at UNC Charlotte. So um, it's not the 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 this is the one of very few places that I would have come 
in order to do this. Um, uh, I really, when I was done with Syracuse, I was kind of done with academia as well. Um, but here I had an opportunity to take um, a really small program that is, has, the, has the potential to be incredibly impactful because this tiny, tiny program within a, a, a state university in a city is in a city that is incredibly bustling and rapidly growing and defining itself and shaping itself. So um, the relationship between this, this program and the city is incredibly powerful and can completely um, uh, have deep lasting impacts within the city and also um, change you know, the way that we deal with certain um, elements of education. So um, I've just started this. This is um, the end of my first year here. I'm just finishing off with the, the summer, the, the third, the last of, of three studios for the um, one-year um, MUD uh, students. Um, this summer has been the first time that I've been sh really reshaping or retooling a part of the program. And then that's going into the fall where, you know, it's slowly being um, shifted into a version of this ideal scene that I have. Um, and the ideal scene is something that's a little bit further off, but um, we are taking the first steps towards that to, into doing something within an academic structure that can be really limiting um, and doesn't always have a whole lot of flexibility. We're trying to do something, um, just, just push the edges one little bit first and then another little bit, like tightening the wheel a little bit, then a little bit more, then a little bit more. So we'll see. Yeah. What and what's, the, and what, and what is that, what is that educational thesis, right? That, you know, there is, we, we, I think we understand this kind of like sort of kind of like progressive model of uh -huh. kind of passing something. Somebody gives you a grade, they move uh -huh. you on whether or not you uh -huh. actually learn the information or not. You learned uh -huh. what they thought you wanted to know. Right. So yeah. that's a traditional education model that we understand, but like in approaching this, like what's your, what's your thesis? What's your, um, yeah, well, there, for, there, there, there are certain pieces that, um, yeah, I, I can lay it all out for you. Um, and, um, much of it, some of it could get me fired um, if I go too deep into it. But, you know, these are things that I talked about at the beginning of even in my interview process. But, um, yeah, like I, 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 I don't believe in grades. Um, I don't believe in social promotion. Um, I, uh, I think that each person should be learning very specific skills that are fundamental and should not move on to the next skill until they've mastered the first skill, <laughs> right? So, um, and there are certain things that go beyond uh, history or culture or race or ethnicity that are just fundamental to anyone. So anyone who's in a design field needs to learn, needs to know how to draw. <laughs> that 
And um, it's absurd to me that that's even a point that is debatable <laughs> right now, um, because there are generations of design students who don't know how to draw. Um, and it, it's just a fundamental connection between the imagination, the ephemeral ideas that we have, getting them into your body, through your hands, and onto paper. That's a fundamental basic thing that everybody should be able to do. Um, and, uh, and then other things like building something with your hands, right? Um, you should be able to do that as well. Um, so uh, being able to create programs where um, that ultimately can break free from an academic schedule, can break free from, you know, you will get this degree within three semesters um, and can, you know, this, the, this is what I mean by social promotion that, oh, you left this semester, you go on to the next semester, regardless of whether you got an A or a D. If you got a D, you need to keep working on that until you can get all the way up to an A. Um, and again, if you take grades out of it, it's like get that skill, master that skill, demonstrate that you can master the skill, then you go on to the next thing, get the next skill. Um, but that's, even that's just way too pie in the sky for any real institutional structure to, to adopt right now. But other pieces are adoptable. Things like um, the size of our program is, is, so, is small enough and focused enough that everyone can be working on the same things, meaning we may not need separate courses. <laughs> like everybody could just be in the studio learning everything they need to learn across the semester by whoever needs to show up to teach it to them <laughs> whenever they show up. You know, instead of from nine to three, you have this class, and then from from four to five, you have this other class. Then that's Tuesday, Thursday, and this is Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Like, why? <laughs> why? Um, I, I think we can break down a lot of those models um, piece by piece to get to a place where we're truly um, educating the individual rather than running um, a certificate mill, right? Mm. Mm. Seku, I love conversations with you because <laughs> you are just such a dangerous mind, you know, and I love a dangerous mind. Um, but you know you 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 work a lot, you think a lot, yeah, uh, we're very similar in that uh probably our favorite places to be is inside of our heads <laughs> um you know and 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 doing this work, the work you know in hip hop architecture and um you know and the systems that you're building beyond you know it it is it is just that right it is work it mm -hmm. on on some level you know it's it can be sacrificial. Um, how do you stay grounded? Like, what is your spiritual practice? What, what keeps you moving forward in the direction you want to go? Yeah, well, a, a lot of my time and energy over the last 
12 years has been focused on self-improvement. Um, I, uh, have, um, I re realized, um, a while back this, this idea was presented to me that we need to be in training. It's like, wow, I actually need to be training myself to understand how to be a better person. <laughs> like, it's not just something that just happens that just comes. And it was, it was a revelatory idea to me that, um, I need to actually learn this thing. I need to be in school for how to be a, a good person, how to be a, a human being. Um, and this is, some, this is an ongoing pursuit. It's not something that uh, you can just take one course or go to one seminar or read one book and have all of it done, right? Um, and I think that's a lot of people's attitudes that they're, if they have that calling or that awakening that, oh, I need to find something better, then they're looking for that one book or they're looking for that one guru or they're looking for that one uh, uh, audio course or a seminar that they can take that'll fix everything. And, and it just doesn't exist. Um, it has to be a dedicated practice of um, I'm going to train myself. So I've been a member of the Global Information Network for the last uh, 11 years and um, going through all the le different levels of training that that organization provides. And it's, um, you know, I, 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 I attribute 100% of my career success to my work in that. Um, I also have a, a spiritual practice, you know, I have a meditation practice. Um, I, uh, uh, listen to audio, audios training every day. I read inspirational books every day. I listen to inspirational leaders on a, on a regular basis. And I go and meet other people who are part of a community of like-minded people who, so I can have these relationships that I can um, depend on. So that when I'm off into my crazy rants about ephemeral bullshit, I don't feel like I'm alone in the world that other people actually understand what I mean, you know, when I'm talking about quantum physics or, or the laws of the universe or, or altered you know, alternate dimensions or different civilizations or things like that, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's a huge part of who I am and how I define myself and, and my journey thus far, for sure. Beautiful. What, what are three books, um, like just that quickly come to mind? And they could be also like an audio recording or mm -hmm. something that you feel is just really shifted. Mm-hmm like your consciousness, maybe even ones that you revisit because of that. Yeah, I, I, I have a, a whole list of them, but I'll, I'll tell you that the, the top three, um, uh, the book Ask and It Is Given by Jerry and Esther Hicks is um, something that uh, has, is probably the most powerful book that I've ever read. And I read it over and over again. Um, I travel with it sometimes. Sometimes I just put it in my suitcase just to have it there um, because of the power that that book has. Um, 
the the secret is is a really good introductory book for anyone interested in the law of attraction or or things of this nature um it's it's a really simple book really clear it got really popular about 10 years ago then fell out of popularity because a whole bunch of people said it didn't work um but you know nothing works unless you work it <laughs> right uh so uh those two uh, are great places to start and if you're looking for um, a really transformational audio course, I said that there isn't one that 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 exists that is answer for everything. But if there is one, this one comes closer than anything else. It's it's called your wish is your command. Not your wish is my command. Your wish is your command. Um, and if you can get your hands on a copy of your wish is your command. Um, uh, it is truly, truly um, transformational material. Um, and if you have trouble finding it, um, you can look up uh, yourwishesyourcommand.com. Uh, I think some of it still exists on YouTube. It may have been taken down off of YouTube, um, but it also can be accessed at uh, globalinformationnetwork.com. Mm. Mm. Um, Seiku, first of all, that list got me right together. Um, <laughs> you know, for people, you know, asking it is given by Jerry and Esther Hicks. Um, if anyone is interested in learning a bit more about um, Esther Hicks, who um, channels someone called Abraham Hicks, mm -hmm. um, you can just find tons of you to just. Google Abraham Hicks. It will all mm -hmm. come up. Um, mm -hmm. Secondly, it explains and shows me how and why we connect the way in which we do. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, because there is there is um, there is a knowing and mm -hmm. a focus that you have that speaks very much to um, you know what you're speaking about. Um, but you know. Before I ask our, our, our last question, um, where can people find you? Like, where can they connect with you and find out the exciting things that you're working on next? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, speaking of Google, I, I think I'm one of the easiest, most Googleable people. <laughs> uh, light flex, light flex, guys. <laughs> He's like, just Google me. You're fine. No. Um, <laughs> It not exactly. It's just because my name is 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 not that that common. I think I only found one other or one other Seku cook through Google and two others on Instagram somewhere, but who have like three posts. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm pretty active on the gram on IG um, at Seku twenty one. Um, and my studio is at Seku Cook Studio. Um, I'm not as active on, on Twitter, but uh, my website is sekukook.com, S-E-K-O-U-C-O-O-K-E.com. And all the good stuff is on there. We're just in the process of uploading some new written material on there and some, some really good um, AV stuff and uh, some profiles and some of the exhibitions that we've done. So, yeah. Ah, 
Amazing. Well, brother, I want to take this time to just acknowledge you and thank you for, you know, and, and I've, I've, I've mentioned it before, but like, thank you for existing on the edge of what you think is possible. <laughs> um, and the reason I say it like that is because, you know, I know sometimes to step out on an idea that's your own um, or one that you feel is not even being spoken about can sometimes make it seem like you're crazy. You're like, am I yeah. crazy? Am I delusional? And and in a way it's because it seems so evident to you that you can't believe that other people don't see it as well. And so to step out, do that and speak your truth, like I have to acknowledge that because it unlocked so many things within me, um, things that I didn't even know I was asking for. Um, it did. And I know if it did it for me, it, will do and continues to do that, um, you know, for other people, for the work that it took even through and with the help of your sister. Um, I have a very incredible sister as well. So I understand exactly what it means to have a big sister who sees you. Um, but to, you know, cross, cross that chasm, come here, do the things that you thought you were supposed to do and transmute that frustration um, into your own path, right? Um, that is something that requires a level of courage that we all have within us, um, but yet sometimes forget that we were actually already born with. And so I have to acknowledge and thank you um, for that. Um, but if you had everything at your behest. What is the world that you imagine for the future? Thank you. Um, I, I, I appreciate all that acknowledgement and um, it, it's really humbling for me to, to, to hear all that, especially since I'm just kind of doing things that I think should be done um, and saying things that sound right to me and i actually quite often expect people to think i'm batshit crazy and um people keep thinking oh keep saying to me at least that sounds like a good idea so um uh but and thanks for giving me a, a truly impossible question to end with uh <laughs> i i uh i I, I think um, I am um, an optimist at heart, um, an, uh, an unending optimist. I um, am filled with hope for the future. I see as much of the good in all circumstances as I can. I truly believe that things happen for us and not to us. And so um, I, I'm seeing whatever challenges come up for us globally, individually, collectively, um, as opportunities for growth and transformation. And I think we're all ready for um, massive transformations in different ways, ways that, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, even two years ago, we couldn't have imagined, right? Um, uh, but, having seen as much as we have seen over the last two and a half years, 
I think we are ready for even bigger changes. Um, and I think a lot of those are going to be quite fantastic and, and exciting and, and, and fun. So. Yeah, absolutely. And big changes are coming. Yes. Um, I, I know, I know you feel that as well. Gird your loins, everybody. Gird your loins. Get prayed <laughs> up and meditated up, honey. Um, Seiku, again, <laughs> thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I mean, when they say iron sharpens iron, these are those moments. And I'm so, so grateful. So, so thank you, brother. Have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your afternoon. I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Take care. Man, Seiku really shows the power of staying curious and constantly putting yourself in the position to learn. Share some of your thoughts with us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And you can now watch this episode on our new YouTube channel, the Institute of Black Imagination. Life is a mystery, but some of its greatest truths are hidden in plain sight. Stay curious and keep dreaming. <laughs>